Sorry. Good morning. It's good to have everybody here with us today. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements and then we'll pray. Uh, we have a special birthday today. Scott Thompson is 60 years old today. Scott, would you step, Scott, step in, step in, step in, step in and at least wave so we can all see you. Yeah. Scott has, one of our deacons just does a phenomenal, here he's in the back, there he is, all right. Does a phenomenal job. So much goes on behind the scenes that you never see that he does. And we are deeply blessed to have him as part of this ministry. So Scott, I hope, uh, hope it's a good day and um, go out to eat or whatever, whatever you're going to do. Watch the Eagles win. I don't know. What, 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 I, it's, but, so, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, another important announcement in the back, um, if you go out to the right, we have our budgets for the year. Um, and so if you want to go and you look at that and you can see where all the money's going and all those kinds of things, that'd be great. If you have any questions, you can ask one of the elders, but what, if you ask me, I will direct you back to Tim Dorier. Tim, would you stand up for just a second? If you all know Tim, Tim, Tim will have all the answers for you on anything on that sheet. Um, I would have some, some of the elders would have some too, but Tim would, would have final really quite a bit. So feel free to ask any of us if you have any questions about what you read. And our meeting, is it next week, Tim? Yes, right? So next week after the service, we'll have a, a business meeting uh, with the members of the church and, and talk about that. One other thing I wanted to mention to you um, that I'd ask your prayer for personally, one of the verses in scripture that brings me great comfort comes from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. One of the beauties of being Christian and losing a loved one is knowing that they're with the Lord. Sad part is that they're not with us. And um, uh, unexpectedly on Friday, my brother went home to be with the Lord. Um, so he's a single, single man. He passed away at home. His name is Ted. And so we're making funeral uh, arrangements now. But we would covet your prayer. He knew the Lord, faithful, faithful servant of God. Um, so, but we, pr pr we really appreciate your prayers for the siblings and uh, nieces and nephews. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we rejoice that you are the God of all hope, um, that we can bring our grief and our sorrow to you. And yet, Lord, when it comes to losing loved ones who know you, we rejoice in the fact that they're in your presence and that we will see them again. So, Father, we pray that through all the events leading up to the funeral and so forth, that you will take glory for your namesake and many will come into the kingdom uh, because of your wonderful gospel and the life that Ted lived. So, Lord, uh, we want to commit our time to you now as we come to you and worship and be with James as he gives us the message this day. We pray that our hearts will be open and, and ready to hear your spirit will work and make us more like your beloved son. And for that, Lord, we will be eternally grateful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
worship the God. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Because he hung up on that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. Yeah. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. We were the beggars. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. Sing that again. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven. Accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We'll shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We were the beggars. We were the beggars. Now we're prisoners now we're running free we are forgiven accepted redeemed by his grace let the house of the lord sing praise sing that again we were the beggars now we're royalty we were the prisoners now we're running free we are forgiven accepted redeemed by his grace let the house of the lord sing praise 
can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Sing that out to him. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. Every chain will break, his broken hearts declare his praise. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Sing this out. chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb oh every knee will bow before him so open up the gates so open up the gates make way before the king of kings The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb. For the sins of the world, his blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before him. Who can stop? Who can stop? Lord Almighty, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Stop the Lord Almighty. 
done for us in Christ. You washed us white as snow when we had no business being in that way before you. God, thank you for, for our worship team, for our church, for a church that loves to sing. And God, I just, I ask now that uh, as James comes, that you would really tie in this, uh, this awe that we have of you with the music we just sung um, through what he has prepared for us today. Uh, just bless him as he comes and bless the service we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus paid it all. Uh, children, you could be dismissed for junior church. For the rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of First Peter? Uh, we start a new series that will take us uh, several months to go through. I think it will take us through the summer, um, and maybe longer. We'll see. Um, and the series is entitled Steadfast Living in an Unsteady World. Steadfast Living in an Unsteady World. And we're going to be looking at 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and the book of Jude. 
and each one of them are going to tie into uh, key things that we're going to be able to learn about how we live in this world and the struggles that we have. I was thinking about the idea of suffering. I don't know if there's an hour during the day that goes by where I am not challenged by suffering myself or more frequently sufferings of others that are around me. Uh, the mental sufferings that people go through, the, the thoughts, the themes, the worries, the doubts that go through their minds, the mental suffering, the emotional suffering that people go through, the anxieties, the fears, the anger, the guilt that is heavy upon uh, people today. And then suffering not only mentally, not only emotionally, but relationally. How many breakdowns happen in relationships? How many struggles and discord and trials and troubles that happen in homes and in relationships? Whether we're relationships in the work, relationships in community, relationships in marriage, relationships in a church, uh, the fracturing that can happen, the suffering. And how many people struggle physically? Uh, just talking to a friend just recently who's, who's battling with cancer and the pain uh, that that person is going through and, and the struggles uh, that they're having. And then spiritually, how many people struggle uh, today and suffer today spiritually, not living in the freedom that Christ has earned for them, feeling guilt and condemnation, questioning whether um, they're going to go to hell when they have faith in Christ. And... Peter is interesting because I love Peter because Peter is, he's called the apostle of hope. I think you're going to see elements of that as we go through this book, as we go through his next two books. The hope that he has, and I think the hope that he has is a byproduct of the hope that he has felt in his life, that he's experienced in his life. They, they say that Paul was the apostle of faith, and John was the apostle of love, but Paul, Peter was the apostle of hope. And hope is interesting because hope in our society is like you cross your fingers, you're really wishing for something to happen, but that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. It's an assurance that you have, no matter what the trials are, no matter what the troubles are, no matter what the difficulties are in your life, that you can have an assurance of who God is and who you are. And I want you to keep, a, keep that idea in mind as we go through these first two verses of the book and then the last three or four verses of the book. So why don't we read the passage first and then I'll start to talk to you a little bit about um, Peter and his life and then what he was telling his people. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at, we're going to kind of bookend it. So we're going to go with the first two verses of the book, and then we'll go to the last section of the book, chapter 5. So let's start with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And turn with me to chapter 5, the end of the book, chapter 5. And let's look at verses 12 through 14, the last three verses here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, 
As I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all of you who are in Christ. So this is God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So Lord, as we um, open your word today and as we work through this, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us. As, as he brought us to salvation in Christ and as he's given us this word, I pray that as he inspired these human authors, I pray that he would do your spirit would do a work in us to not only hear your word, but to believe your word. Not only to believe your word, to obey your word, to trust you and obey. And so, Lord, I, I praise you for that. I thank you for your great gospel of amazing grace. Thank you for your precious son whose blood was poured out for us. I thank you for your spirit that empowers us, Lord. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in what we do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So many of you know who Peter was, but let's just kind of take a, a little excursus here for a moment as we think about Peter. Uh, Peter was named Simon, and he was Simon, son of John. And we find in the Gospels that he had a brother, Andrew. Andrew had heard about the Messiah and then brought Peter to him, Simon. And the very first time that Jesus ran into him, he said, your name is Simon, son of John, but now you are going to be called Cephas or Peter. So he gave him a name, a change of his name right there in the beginning. Now, he was a fisherman, um, we know that, and as a fisher of fish, Jesus said, you're going to become a fisher of men, and then he's ultimately going to become a shepherd of God's flock, which I, I find interesting as he's going through. There are 12 disciples, and the 12 disciples then become 12 apostles, and Peter is first among those apostles. Anytime there is a listing of the apostles, which happens uh, in Mark, I think it happens in uh, Matthew, Mark, John, uh, Luke, and then in Acts. I think those are the four places. Anytime there's a listing of the apostles, Peter is always listed first among the 12. And it's also interesting that Judas is always listed last among the 12. So as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a disciple, he's a follower, he's a student. He would follow Jesus around, he was a, a pupil. And Jesus was his teacher and he was learning much about him. Now what do we know about Peter's personality, his character? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you know about Peter's personality, his character. You probably could list them off. He was, he was impulsive. He was impetuous, you know. Um, he didn't seem like he was ever really afraid of anything. He would speak up, and as the leader, he would do that. Over, oftentimes, we would find that he was pretty strong-willed, and he was, um, but at times, prideful. On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, um, he said, in essence, everybody else will fall away, but I won't. And Jesus says, you know, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. I want you to pray, and Peter didn't pray, and Peter says, I'm never going to fall. So there was some level of self-confidence, of pride uh, that was in Peter. And what I, I love about Peter is this, he is constantly failing, 
but he is constantly being forgiven by God. I want you to keep that theme in mind, that his, his failures, but he went back to Christ, and Christ constantly is forgiving him and setting him free, constantly forgiving him and setting him free. That is such good news for you and for me, because I struggle constantly in my life. I'm constantly failing, but God's forgiveness is always greater. That's what I see in Paul and Peter. Peter was bold as well. You know, a lot of people remember that Peter walked on water and then he fell into the water. But the one thing that they don't ever think about is this. How many of the other disciples got out of the boat? None of them. Peter was the one that got out of the boat and he walked on water. And when he, he saw Christ, he walked on water and then he got discouraged. He got def, uh, distracted and then he fell in. But he was the only apostle that dared to get out of that boat. He was bold. He was tender-hearted. He, he was caring. He, he, he was compassionate. Now, we know Peter was married. We know that from Scripture. And we also know that he had a mother-in-law that lived with him. Uh, we don't know about whether he had children or not. So we see a man who struggled at times with failure. In the book of Galatians, we find that he seemed to struggle with levels of hypocrisy. When the Jewish people, his Jewish friends were not around, he was hanging out with the Gentiles. And then after that, when his Jewish friends came, then what did he do? He stopped hanging out with the Gentiles and Paul called him out on that. But there was something, once again, he was willing to be confronted and he didn't, he didn't stop, um, how do I put it? His heart was tender enough to hear that confrontation and change. He wasn't so prideful, he wasn't so arrogant. When he was confronted, he changed, which is great. Now, we don't see this in scripture. We know that Jesus says that you're gonna to live to be an old man, but then at this time you're going to die. Now, he didn't, tell, he didn't tell Peter how he was gonna die, but he says that you are going to die in your old age. And apparently, was, uh, tradition says that he was crucified and that he did not wanna be crucified like his Lord and Savior. He chose to be crucified upside down. Which, which I find interesting that he, he died in Rome probably under uh, the great persecution. There's one other thing that really um, I love about Peter, the boldness, you know, this man who could not stand before a little girl out um, days before and confess Christ is now standing up in front of thousands of people and the sermon he must have preached, um, 3,000 people getting saved. I mean, that would just be ultimately amazing that God would do such a work in him and that he would work through him in that way. In the book of Acts, we find him also sleeping on the night that he was going to be killed. He had such a security in God that no matter what the suffering was happening, James had just been slaughtered, just been killed under Herod, and the next day, Peter was going to be brought on trial and he was going to be murdered as well. And Peter is found in that prison sleeping between two guards. How many sleepless nights have you gone through? How many times have you gone through trials and times that are happening in your life and you just can't sleep? You have that insomnia and you're just pacing back and forth. Peter is able to sleep knowing the next day he may die. It's really good. Now, Peter had a name change. We see that. He was called, he went from being Simon, one who hears, I believe it says, to Cephas, a small rock. 
And he had that name change. God oftentimes did those name changes with people in the Bible. Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, and um, Levi became Matthew, and now we have Peter or Simon becoming Peter. And those name changes oftentimes would be symbolic of something that God was going to do in their lives or through their lives. And I think in many ways, that's exactly what was happening with Peter here. God was doing something different in his life and he was changing him. So he's a disciple, he is an apostle, he's the leader of leaders, but there was something about Peter, his heart changed. We just talked about that in Sunday school. That radical change of life starts from the inside out And the night that Christ was being betrayed, was going to be betrayed, Peter was told that he was going to deny him. And Peter rejected that. He was told that Satan wanted to sift him like weak, and Peter rejected that. And what happened? He actually denied Christ once, twice, three times. And the guilt and the remorse broke him, and he ran. And that after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Peter was one of the first disciples that was running to the tomb just to be able to see him. See if this is really true. And then we see his great commissioning. He was recommissioned again. And if you remember, Jesus said, asked him three questions. You remember the three questions? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I don't know, I find this encouraging because as a leader, I can often struggle and I can mess up, right? But God can still use people that mess up. Peter messed up constantly and and Jesus said, I am going to entrust you, Peter, with the most important people in my life. The people from whom I died, for whom I died, I'm entrusting them to you. Do you love me? Then get to work feeding them and tending to them. Be a shepherd. You went from being a fisher of man, fisher of fish, to a fisher of man, to a shepherd of my flock. I'm giving them to you. What a precious um, privilege that Peter has been given. God uh, restored him. God entrusts him, and God is now enabling him. The patience that he has. So he's writing this letter to these people, and it says here, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I probably should have done a dug thing and put the uh, map up there for you. Um, But if you were looking for them on the map, you'd have to find a biblical map because Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia don't exist any longer. They are in modern Turkey. Um, So if you were looking at the map of um, today, that's where you would find these places. And they're exiles, they're sojourners, they are on the road, they have been removed from their home and they are out, they are aliens, they're strangers, they're in a foreign land. And so Peter is writing this to them and in all likelihood they are exiles because of a potential persecution that has come upon. Now, either they've experienced that persecution or they hear the persecution is coming and they have gone. Now, some of them may be Jewish people that have left Israel to go out to these lands, or these may be Gentiles. There are arguments on both ways. But whatever it is, he says that you are not in your homeland, you're exiles right now. 
It is also possible that the exiling is not only geographically earthly, but the exiling is that you're not in heaven, which is your true home, you're here on earth. Both arguments work. So that you are either away from your homeland in a foreign land and suffering persecution, or you're away from home in heaven, which is your real abode. And I, I think it could be both. And clearly, he'll, you'll see that in the next sermon where he'll talk about your inheritance is left in heaven, but I won't preach that sermon here. Um, as we look through First Peter, we're gonna see the theme of suffering. Suffering is gonna be talked about at least 15 times in the book. Over and over again, it's suffering, suffering, suffering. That's why I have the title, Suffering Yet Eternally Secure. He's talking about the suffering, but he'll talk about how you live in this world, this godless world. He'll talk about marriage. He'll talk about living with government. He'll talk about responsibilities. He'll talk about relationships. But he talks a lot about Christ. And he says that Christ suffered in your place as your substitute, which we'll celebrate here at the Lord's table this morning. But then he's also saying that Christ suffered as as an example for you, how you live this life in this world. He talks about eldership, he talks about leadership, he talks about church, he talks about a lot of themes about how you live steadfast in an unsteady world. I wanna point out several things I want you to think about. Now I said suffering, yet eternally secure. Let's look about the idea of eternal security. And the first thing I want you to consider is this, that you have been chosen eternally. You have been chosen eternally. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the elect exiles, I skipped over the word elect, elect exiles of the dispersion. So there is, there is probably no doctrine that creates a lot of angst for people, and I'm not going to go too deep into it today, but I, I want you to think about this. There are some that believe in a more Calvinistic viewpoint that God has sovereignly chosen everybody, uh, so, chosen a certain number of people, and then there are others that will say God is chosen through uh, means of other means in life. I, I'm, I'm not going to argue that today. I, what I will say is this that God has sovereignly chosen, and the election is very clear, it's written in multiple books of the Bible, that God has chosen people. He has picked you, if you're in Christ, long ago. He picked you before this world was ever created, it says in Ephesians chapter um, one. It's interesting that for some, pe some people really struggle with this idea of election, but election has been there throughout scripture. He chose Abraham, uh, Abram out of Earl of the Chaldeans, and he, he chose this man who was an idol worshiper, and he chose him and brought him to faith. He, he chose Jacob rather than Esau. He chose Israel among all the nations. God has sovereignly chosen people um, throughout life. And what we see here is that Peter says he wants to ground your security in the fact that you've been chosen by God. You're not the last person picked on the team. You know, uh, you know, maybe some of you were uh, not the greatest sports, you know, when we used to break up these teams in high school or um, you would have a captain, two captains, and then you would start picking the people and you would always pick the person that was the really good athlete in the beginning. And you pick the really good athlete in the beginning and then you get down to the 
the scrub there. <laughs> and it's like, I guess I got to pick him. That's not the way it was with God. God picked you, not because of anything about you, it's because of what he sees in himself. And, and God picked you as this sovereign election that he says that I have chosen you and I have picked you as my own, that you're part of my family. Now, a lot of times people say that doesn't just seem fair at all, and, well, life's not fair. Um, but what I will say is this. Every person that is ever saved has been saved because of the sovereign election of God, and every person that's ever been saved has chosen to turn to Christ. And whether it's God's sovereignty or human responsibility, I think they both work, and it's a mystery to me, and I trust what God's word says. We are called to repent and turn to him, that's what your call is, and God says that I sovereignly choose those that are mine. Both work, and both are true, and believe. But find security in the fact that you've been chosen by God. God chose you not because of anything that you've done. God chose you before this world was ever created, before you were ever a thought in anyone's mind, God chose you. And as you go through the suffering and the trials and the troubles of life, can you find yourself grounded in the fact that God chose me? Second thing I want you to see is that God knows you entirely. He says, under that umbrella of election, he says, now here's some elements I want you to see. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God, foreknowledge of God, God knows everything perfectly. God knows everything fully. God knows everything completely and totally. And so God knows everything. He sees everything in advance. He saw you before you were ever you. He saw you and he knows you. And he says that you have been elected by the foreknowledge, the knowledge of God beforehand, that information. I find it interesting for me and for you. I, I needed to do research this week to preach the sermon, and you are hearing information this week and learning, hopefully, about through this sermon. So our knowledge that we gain is a gained knowledge. It's an acquired knowledge, and it's a knowledge that will ultimately deteriorate over time. You know, I was talking to a friend who's a parent of two different people. One parent has dementia, the other parent has uh, Alzheimer's. And they're losing thoughts and losing knowledge that they've had before because they are deteriorating over time. Our knowledge has been acquired, our knowledge has been gained, but that knowledge can be lost over time. But God's knowledge is never acquired. God's knowledge is never, he knows everything right now at this moment in its entirety. Everything past, everything present, everything future, God knows it. He doesn't have to be taught. He doesn't have to acquire knowledge. He doesn't gain knowledge. And his knowledge never breaks down over time. That's the God that you, say, that you serve. That God never goes, I never knew that. Right. Never does. We have a God who never says, I forgot that. We have a God who never forgets. He knows everything. He knows it, everything fully. He knows everything completely. I often say to my clients, God never panics. So you can trust him. He's never caught off guard. You could trust him. Now, for some of us that may feel uncomfortable that God knows everything completely, God knows everything entirely, we may find ourselves questioning, well, he knows everything about me. He knows the worst things about me, and he does. 
He knew the worst things about me before I ever did any of those things, before the foundation of this world, and he still sovereignly chose me. Let rest in that. When suffering comes into your life, rest in the fact that God sovereignly chose you. He shows you eternally, but he knows you entirely. He knows every thought you've ever had, every word that you ever, <clears throat> ever spoke, every action that you've ever done. We have a tendency to hide. We've been doing that since the garden, right? We cover up, we hide, we run away. But God says, you can run, you can cover up, but I know everything. Adam, I know you're hiding in that bush. I know you. And yet... That would not be enough for a lot of people because if you know everything, the next thing is what is important, I think, in, in, as well. Not only does God choose you eternally, know you entirely, he loves you infinitely. Loves you infinitely. Now, James, I don't see the word love here. Watch, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, when we often think about knowledge, we think about intellectual or informational. But when scripture talks about knowledge, it oftentimes talks about intimacy. It talks about a man knowing his wife intimately, the most intimate relationship that two people can share, God knows you. So it's not only he knows you intellectually, it's not only that he knows information about you, but he knows you intimately. He loves you. What? incredible security that could be as you're living amongst the suffering and the trials and the troubles and the difficulties in life to know that God loves you and God's love is an is an action scripture talks about love and you know a lot of times in our society we talk about love as a feeling and it's this emotion it's the this thing that I am I fell in love with this person but that's not what the bible speaks about love is an active thing in scripture it is it is something it's a choice that we make we choose to love that's why god can say you can love you're called to love your enemies you could pray for those who persecute you because it's an action that you do towards people it's what you do radically. God loved you when you were unlovable. God loved you enough to send his son for you. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his most precious gift, his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now he sent his son before you were ever going to be converted. So God loves you. That love, in Greek, it's this agape love. It's this love of, it's more than just affection. It's a love of selflessness. It's a love that is giving, a love that abides, where faith, hope, and love of greatest of these is love, he says in 1 Corinthians. This agape love mirrors the character of God, that it's the character of God to be a lover, to be a giver, to be a one that gives out to those that are in need. So he's saying this, that I want you to know that yes, you've been chosen eternally before the foundation of this world and that you are known entirely. Everything about you, God knows. But on top of that, he loves you infinitely. If you go into my office, I have this sign in there. I often say this, God, God loves you infinitely, accepts you totally and forgives you completely. God loves you infinitely. And so... When the sufferings come, and, and whether it's external sufferings of other people or the physical sufferings that you're going through, the mental, emotional sufferings, the relational sufferings, the spiritual sufferings, ground yourself in the foundational truth that you're chosen by God 
one. You were known by God, two. You were loved by God, three. And number four, you were radically saved by God. Radically saved. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Which is interesting, because when we oftentimes think about sanctification, oftentimes we're thinking about this progressive sanctification. We'll, you'll see it this way, and I've, we've talked about this, that there's justification where you are declared right in the sight of God at your conversion, and then there's this period of time between your conversion and going to heaven, which we call sanctification, where you're progressively made more and more holy, like God, and then glorification, when you will get to heaven. And so we oftentimes talk about sanctification as this middle phase of your salvation where you're growing to become more like Christ. But that, I don't think that's what Peter's getting at here. What he's getting at is the initial moment that you are converted. So you have been chosen by God eternally. You've been known by God entirely. You've been loved by God infinitely. Now you are being saved radically. At the moment of your conversion, God has moved you from stranger to one of my family. He has moved you from death to life, from deaf to hearing, from blind to seeing. He moves you from separating an enemy to a family friend. You are radically changed. And what you are, believe it or not, this is mind-blowing, you are viewed as righteous in the sight of God at the moment of your conversion. Positionally, you were made right before God. You have been saved from God, your judge. You have been saved from sin. You've been saved from sin's power. You have been saved from self and Satan. You've been saved from hell. You've been saved from God's wrath. And you are radically new. It's a radical change. Positionally, he just takes you out of the grave and brings you to life. And what he's saying is this. When the suffering comes in your life, remind yourself of the radical salvation that God has done for you. He has changed you inside out. He's changed you positionally. You're no longer an enemy. You're his friend. You're no longer separated. You've brought him brought near. So the sanctification here, I believe, is that you've been set apart. I didn't tell you that, but sanctification means to be set apart. God says, I'm plucking that one out, that's mine. Plucking that one out, that's mine. Another one, that's mine. And on that day, when I was 13 years old at Pinebrook Bible Conference, I don't know why, but God says, he's mine. Maybe today is the day that God shows that you're his. Maybe day after day you've been hearing sermons. Maybe day after day you've heard the gospel message. You've gone through 5,000 Christmases. Well, maybe not that many. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully not that many. Uh, You've gone through tons of Christmases, tons of Resurrection Sundays. You've heard the gospel message and you said no. Maybe today is the day that you say yes. Maybe today is the day that you bend your knee to him. He changed you radically. He saved you radically, but... The fifth thing I want you to know is that he is changing you progressively. He's changing you progressively. He says, the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So Peter uses a lot of allusions. We'll see some allusions to the Old Testament as Peter writes. And, you know, this is the amazing thing about this man. He's a fisherman. He's not a theologian. He's a fisherman. But he knew the word even as a fisherman. He sat in church, he probably took his notes, he, he studied the scriptures in whatever way he could, but he was able to um, 
learn God's word and apply God's word in his life. I think that's really helpful for us. Now, he talks here about obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, once again, a lot of people tend to think the sprinkling with his blood is about the cross and about our salvation. I don't think so. I, I think it's afterwards. I think the progression has been going that you are elect by God, you have been chosen by God, you are known by God, you are loved by God, you have been radically saved, you are now growing in obedience. I think that's what he's going to get at, because this whole book is going to be talking about how we can live obedient, steadfast lives in this uncertain time. How do you live in a way that is holy? And so what he says is this. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ... It's so interesting that there's so many people today that think that salvation is only praying a prayer and there's no change. And that's, that's just so foreign to what scripture says, that there should be fruits of repentance. There should be a radical change of your life. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't mess up like Peter did time after time after time. He messed up. But when he messed up, he repented and returned back to God and God forgave him and then used him again. It's not that we don't ever fail, but it's the fact that we know who to go to when we fail time after time. And obedience is, is essential. That God tells us the way we are called to think. God tells us the way we are called to speak. God tells us the way we are called to act. He's given us 66 books about how we're called to live obediently. In this book, he actually says, be holy as I am holy. See, what God has done is this. You, when you were radically saved, he positionally counted you as righteous in his sight. He has actually given you the position as though you lived Christ's perfect life. Because he counts Christ's character and Christ's conduct as your own. But practically over here, I'm not that way. And so what he does is practically, progressively, he is changing you from the inside out as the Holy Spirit gets more and more of your heart. But it comes down to your cooperating with him, obeying him so that you look like Christ over and over, step by step by step in your life. But then he connects it to this sprinkling with his blood. And what in the world is he talking about there? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, I, I, think I, I think this is where he is getting this theme. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a time where the sprinkling, it didn't happen a whole lot with individuals, but I think there was one time where a leper was sprinkled with blood, another time, um, Aaron and his sons were sprinkled to consecrate their priesthood. But this time, I think this is what Peter's getting at in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Moses has just received a law, Exodus 20. And he's come down with these Ten Commandments. And he, he comes down with these Ten Commandments in front of the people. And it says this in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So now he's preaching, in essence. And all the people answered him in one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will what? Do. We will do. 
And Moses wrote down all the words that the Lord, and he rose up early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of an oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and threw it against the altar. And he took half the blood I'm sorry, then he took half the blood and uh, threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be, my version says, obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what are the people doing? The people were hearing the word, Then the people were responding by saying, we will obey. And what he did was he took blood and he threw it against the altar. And then he took another portion of that blood and threw that on them. In essence, they were breaking a covenant. In the Old Testament, there were contracts, but then there were covenants. Covenants were agreements between two parties. And oftentimes, you would create a covenant by blood, you would actually, not to be too gross, but what you would do is you would take an animal and cut that animal in two. And then it's bloody. And as you cut that animal in two, like this aisle in front of me, then the two parties would walk side by side down that bloody path and in essence say, I am covenanting with you, you're covenanting with me. If we fail to break, if we fail this covenant, we will become as dead as the animals on the side here. So what Moses is doing is he's, he's throwing blood against the altar, which represents God, and then he is throwing blood on you, which represents you. You're saying, we will obey. God is saying, I will forgive. Over and over, I'll obey, but I fail. God forgives. Over and over. And the altar in the Old Testament becomes the cross in the New Testament, and that Jesus Christ bled and died for you. God is faithful. Peter, Paul said in 2, Peter, uh, 2 Thess, um, Timothy that we are faithless, but he will remain faithful because he can't deny himself. God's promise to you, he will never fail that promise to you. So you sin, God will keep his side of the covenant even when we fail our side of the covenant. He is constantly grace upon grace, amazing grace, with sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The one that wrote that song on his deathbed said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is this amazing and great savior. And 1 John tells us that if you confess your sins, he is what? Faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Paul said in Romans. One of my favorite hymns, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will redeem you and pardon you from all your sin. See, as you stand here, I want you to know that you are chosen by God. You're loved, known entirely. You're loved infinitely. You're saved radically. You're changed progressively. Day by day, whether it's thoughts or words or attitudes or actions, you fail. God forgives you, but then he progressively wants to make you free over and over again. And you do that by going back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
You knew that, do that by remembering the sprinkling of the blood and remembering that obedience to Christ. The last piece I want you to consider is not only you're chosen eternally, known entirely, loved infinitely, saved radically, changed progressively, you are graced abundantly. Graced abundantly. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a really, uh, I love that. Grace was the Greek side of it, grace. Peace, shalom, was the Jewish side of it. And he's saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you. You, you know, and, and Paul uses similar language, grace and peace, and other New Testament writers do the same. Grace never comes after peace. You ever wonder why? It never says peace and grace. It always says peace after grace. Grace always comes first. Whether it's, unmerit, it's unmerited favor, undeserved favor, but the grace is an unsurpassed grace. It is an unassailable grace. It is grace enough. It is grace that surpasses any sin. And Peter knew that. That's where his great hope was. I constantly fail you, Christ, but you are constantly forgiving me. In Romans 5, 1, it says, therefore you've been justified by faith. You have peace with God. So grace upon grace. His, his grace is abundant to you over and over. It never fails. It will never run out. Your sin will never draw, draw the well of God's grace to an end. Let's go in closing. Jump with me to chapter 5. Verse 12 and following. Chapter 5, verses 12 and following. It says, by this, 1 Peter 5, 12. It says, by Silvanus, my faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Silvanus, um, could have been Silas, I'm not sure, um, faithful brother, and some wonder whether he was Paul, uh, Peter's secretary, as Peter's dictating this letter, is Silvanus the one that's actually writing it down? Um, but it seems as though he's not the one writing it down, he's the one that's delivering this letter. Uh, whatever way it is, he was, he was faithful. And he, he, see how he grounds it, he says, I want you to remind yourself of the true grace of God, stand firm in it. No matter what the suffering is, stand firm in it. Then he says, she who is in Babylon, who likewise chosen, sends you greeting. Those seem to be churches in Babylon, and Babylon was code word for Rome of the time. So there are elect people in Rome that are sending you greetings, so you're not alone in your suffering. And so then he ends with this, greet one another with a holy kiss. Kiss of love, peace to you all that are in Christ Jesus. He ends by saying, no grace, stand firm in it, be a minister of gospel grace like Silvanus was taking the word out there and love one another. Isn't that where we're called to stand in the midst of the sufferings and the trials that you go through? So today I want you to remind yourself that in Christ you are chosen eternally if you know Christ and you are known entirely, he knows everything. You are loved infinitely. You're saved radically. You're being changed progressively. But you are graced abundantly. No matter what the suffering you're going through, ground yourself in those foundational truths. Jesus um, talked about in 
Matthew chapter 7, he talked about those that build their house on a rock and those that build their house on sand. And when they build their house on sand, when the winds and the waves and the struggles of life come, it beats against their house and it falls. But those that build their houses on the rock, those that hear God's words, interestingly enough, and obeys them, hears God's word and obeys them, they build their house on a rock. The storms come, beats against the house, but that house stands. Your foundation in Christ is firm. Stand firm. So Father, I don't know what the suffering is that uh, people are experiencing right now. Perhaps as I went through the list earlier, they're standing there thinking, yeah, I'm suffering emotionally. Or yes, I'm suffering mentally. Maybe they've just got into an argument with a family member, but they're suffering relationally. Maybe for some of them, they're feeling guilt and condemnation, even though they profess faith in you, and even though that they have been told about gospel grace, they struggle spiritually. For so many of us, we suffer. Father, I pray that you would remind us to suffer like your son did. He suffered in our place as our substitute, and he suffered in such a way that he provided us an example. Help us to do that well. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the firm foundation. You say to the Lord, it's laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath led. Thank you that we can flee to your son in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a um, good day. It's always a good day to take the Lord's table, uh, the communion table. The communion table that sits before us is just um, a juice and a wafer. It's nothing dramatic. It doesn't change into the blood or the body of Christ. I know some places teach that. That's not true. He was crucified once for sinners, once. But when we do take this, it's a special time because believers come together and we remind ourselves of what it costs to bring us to faith, that precious blood that was shed for you, that body that was broken for you. Now here at the chapel, we have this cup and wafer. There are two cups, and when you take it, there's a, cup, a wafer underneath and a cup of juice uh, above. Uh, here at the chapel as well, we believe that if you're in the community of God's family, whether you're part of our community, you're part of the family of God, please take and participate. Scripture says that though if you do not know Christ, please let this plate pass from you. And if you don't know Christ, find one of us so that we can talk to you about the amazing things that God can do for you. But as you do this, remind yourself of the great grace that God has provided for you in his son. Would you pray with me? So Father, we're called not to come to this communion table in an unworthy manner. We're called to come to this communion table in a way that we are reminding ourselves of you, your son, your spirit, it's interesting, Father, that as we went through that sermon, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all there bringing about our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for your precious blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlivening us and connecting us with Christ. And Father, thank you for electing us before the foundation of this world. Help us to celebrate well today. In Jesus' name, amen.
the Apostle Paul shares these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
the daylight flees. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Sing us out to him. Curtain torn into the dead are raised to Father, what a love, what a cost. But we stand forgiven at the cross. God, help us to just dwell on that this week. Thank you for the um, illustration, Lord, of begetting peace from the grace that you bestow upon us. God, peace is so needed in this uh, world that we live in today. I mean, it always has, but just seemingly more and more these days, it just we need peace we can only find that from the grace from which you provide. And God, we just ask that you would help us to really dwell on that this week.
to become more at peace with the grace that you provided for our watching world so we can affect change in the people that are around us. So uh, bless us as we go. Thank you for our worship this morning of you and uh, through the word. And uh, just bless us as we go in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.